Hi, Chris. How you doing? Good. Thanks for being here this morning. Thank you for having me. So we ended our last conversation with you leaving France. And at that point, drugs had tanked your basketball opportunity and your heart really wasn't in playing basketball. So what happens after France? Where'd you go? So after France, um, I was of the mindset that I was going to go back to California. But as the death hours of my departure got closer and closer, I started to notice that my sister was being mentioned more and more. And so unbeknownst to me, um, my mom had sort of brokered a deal because my grandfather at this time was sick and I was such a, a handful. Uh, she had spoken to my sister and they had bought my sister a house in Texas. And I was to go relocate in Texas and live with my sister in the hopes that I could pull it together, get straight. Cause at this, po at this point, people are starting to notice, you know, there's a trend here. And so uh, I was going to Texas to live with my sister to, to pull it together and, and sort of, you know, straighten my life out. And at first things are okay, but then it, it doesn't take long. I fall right back into my old ways. You know, at first I tried to hide it, but I start using drugs in her house and I start becoming just wild, uh, staying up late, having company over, locking myself in my room, you know, smoking cigarettes in her house when I'm telling her I'm not, you know, just sort of bonehead things. Um, and it just starts spiraling out of control. How long did you end up living with your sister? Oh, I think it only lasted maybe two, three months before, you know, it was just unmanageable. And, you know, at this point there was a little kid in the house. And um, so she had to do what she had to do. And so she said that I couldn't stay there anymore. And so, you know, at that point, I didn't realize how big of a offender I was at this point. But, you know, it was sort of like a, a relief for me, right? You know, okay, you don't want me here. Now I have to go back home. Now there's nowhere else for me to go. So let's go back to California. What happens in California? So I went back home to California and there was a lot going on. My grandfather was uh, nearing his twilight uh, my mom was extremely stressed. Zachary was doing the best he could to hold the household together. Um, and then I pop up. And so I get, I get a room and, um, it doesn't, it doesn't take me, but probably two days to start coming in and out of the house late, running around with old friends. Um, really just adding stress on that real fragile situation. And I start to complain that I can't live here. This is too much for me to deal with. And so uh, I talked my mom into getting me an apartment uh, down the street in Claremont. And this was my first apartment since I had since I had left high school. I'd been traveling around and playing basketball. So I get my first apartment in Claremont and much of the same continues there. So what was your life like at this point? Did you have a job or was life one big party? At this point in my life, you know, I, 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 I was just in free fall. So there was no job. There was no structure. There was no responsibility. Um, my, my apartment was a flop house party house for anybody who rode a skateboard or anybody who surfed, anybody who painted or, or did graffiti. They were more than welcome. Um, I'm using, I'm using, I have been introduced now on a constant basis to pain pills. Um, pain pills and, you know, Valium, Somas, all of those, uh, all the above. And I'm really just starting to rifle through pills at a unbelievable rate. And my addiction is building without me even knowing it. And, um, 
it's not long before I get evicted from the apartment because of the partying and the addiction that's happening within those walls. Around that time, you got into some legal trouble. Tell us about that. Right around this time at the apartment in Claremont, it was a daily routine, you know, up by nine, nine thirty. I'm at the Sunshine Mart uh, buying beer, getting drunk. Um, this particular day, uh, it was boxed wine and pain pills. So it wasn't uncommon for me to drink an entire box of wine by 1130 a.m. Uh, so I was with my buddy Casey and, uh, we were, I had, a, my parents had bought me a truck when I had came home. Cause you know, obviously I had to have a job. I manipulated that situation and with no intent to have a job. So, uh, we lived right up the hill from the beach. And, uh, so, so I was a wild morning, right? Uh, lots of pills, lots of weed, lots of wine, lots of beer. We're going to go to the beach. Uh, we're driving down this this street called Garnett. It's a real popular place in the beach. Bars on each side. It's always popping. People are always having fun no matter what time of day it is. So I'm about probably four or five times my legal limit at this point. I shouldn't be behind the wheel. Um, and I'm going to go see a buddy down all the way, all the way down Garnett where, where it tees off. And uh, on my way there, I, I come about three or four feet away from T-boning a cop. So realizing the situation and having that quick moment of sobriety, I try to run away. So I take off down the street, go into an alley, try to park my car and get out. And as I'm getting out, the cops are behind me and they arrest me and uh, we go round and round. But initially uh, or eventually I get arrested for a DUI. Well, after that, I had my truck back. But then I knocked all four wheels off in an accident in the middle of the freeway that nobody saw and by the grace of god a tow truck was the first or before the cops right so at this point the truck is stranded on a loop in the middle of the loop with none of the wheels basically on it because i went up over the curb because i was going too fast uh, i think i was on mushrooms and cocaine i had left a hotel party and uh Boom, I'm in the middle of the island and a tow truck comes and they tow my truck and then uh, my parents come and I get into a big old argument with my parents in the middle of the tow yard and uh, I run and scale like this 15 foot fence and jump over it and run away from the scene with leave my parents there. And uh, that's when I, they took my car away and I was sort of on my way to becoming Big Chris, the guy with all the potential and nothing. We've talked about your grandfather and his influence on your life in previous episodes. What was it like when you lost your grandfather? You know, it being in, being in my addiction so heavily, I didn't, I didn't really, I know this is going to sound raw, but I didn't really care about anybody. I didn't know how much rather I cared for people because all my feelings were masked. So when my grandfather passed, it was, a, it was a, a sad moment, but a moment that didn't last long with me. It was a moment that caught up for me a long time later in the, in, in, in the future. Like, I mean, it was, it, was, it was tough, but I didn't mourn. I didn't have time to mourn because I needed the next pill. Like there was no time for anything but pills. It was either it was either spend my time finding my pills 
and my escape or, you know, going into withdrawal and, and being unmanageable for myself. So when he passed, I just really didn't, it's sad, but I, I didn't really, I cared, but I, I didn't care as much as I should have. After your grandfather passed, what was the next big event in your life? So after, after George died, my parents, my mother, moreover, couldn't stand being in the house, which looking back, I understand it was, uh, it was in her best interest. She felt to actually just pick up and move. My sister was in Texas with her grandbaby. So they sold the house and they left. But at this point, there was just no way I was leaving California. So I decided to stay, um, at the house in Pacific Beach, you know, and at this point, everybody, all my friends from Claremont had migrated down to the beach. And so I, I decided to stay there with the promise that I would get a job and clean my act up. And once again, I, you know, I failed miserably at this. Uh, and I spent the next year, two years, uh, partying, living, living, you know, a beach bum's life, no job, no responsibility, wake up, smoking pot, taking pills doing coke, uh, just not a care in the world. Everybody knows me as Big Chris, somebody who went over to go play ball and was really talented. Um, but everybody that I'm involved with at this time in my life is just really, just really has a knack for either uh, something really stylish like skating or surfing or, or design artwork. So basketball at this point was the furthest thing on my mind. I was just so into that culture, the, the West Coast, Southern uh, California beach culture. Um, I was rubbing shoulders with people who were designing clothes for companies, doing artwork for skateboards. And in my own little world that I had you know, conjured up or manifested for myself, that was my next big thing, right? Like basketball was no longer a part of me. It was no longer anything that uh, I wanted. I would, I would relish in it with people when they'd ask, but you know, my eyes were set on becoming the next, like next guy in the group who would take up something like, Oh, he's a videographer. or Oh, he's, he made a really rad logo and we want to put it somewhere. You know, that was my mindset at that time. It wasn't set on anything that had to do with sports or, or anything of that nature. Most of my days were consisting of really a bar life. I had become a sloppy drunk at this point. I was consuming pills just on the hour, every hour. Uh, I was doing a lot of cocaine. And I'm just really like a disheveled individual now at this point, waking up, not showering, beelining it to the bar, staying around the bar all day, even if I didn't have money in my pocket, just, you know, just sort of that hang around kind of guy. Um, and then also, you know, that that lifestyle sort of blends in with the lifestyle that a lot of my friends had. But they didn't take it to that extreme level like I had, but I was just sort of this shady character who was just every day. The first thing on my mind was you know, getting those pills. Then it was, where am I going to drink? And, you know, wherever the day took me, I went. And I spent a lot of my time at parties. Uh, you know, all my friends always were throwing parties. I was always welcome at the parties. And these nights were just filled with massive drug use, women, uh, loud music, bands, um, 
bar hopping, just just a carefree life. What's your friends think about you not having a job? My guys, my friends were the guys who were sort of leading this image of what I thought I was doing, right? These guys wake up, listen to rock and roll, hook themselves downstairs, wear the, the, the newest clothes, setting the newest trends. But what I didn't realize was that they were working for it, right? Their job was their job. And there was some resentment that built up amongst my friends, really the, my dearest friends, the guys I cared most about, um, because they, they, in short, saw me rotting away. They saw me wasting my life. And I didn't, couldn't really tell, like I knew it was coming from an authentic place, but I just didn't know that they cared about me. I didn't know they cared enough about me to tell me what I needed to hear instead of what I wanted to hear. Because my thought process was, dude, you're doing the same thing I'm doing. But really, it, it really wasn't, right? They were paying their bills. They were up when they needed to be up. They were where they needed to be. And I was just floating. Um, so yeah, a few of my dearest friends really got onto me and I end up losing those friends. I end up losing some really, some, some really special people in my life that I think about all the time. At this point, your drug of choice is Vicodin. Why? And tell us how that affected you. Opioids are a tough, they're just a tough deal. I mean, it gave me a sense of, it gave me a sense of accomplishment. Like no matter what I had done, no matter what I was going through, as long as I had a pocket full of pills, my reality wasn't as heavy as it really was to me. So it was a numbing effect for me. It put me in a good mood. Uh, you know, it made me this loquacious character who made a lot of promises, but never came good on them. It, it made me feel like I fit in, right? Without, without them, I didn't fit in. Without that drug in my system, I was not able to enter into circles, communicate effectively. I, I was just a shell of a person. And so when I would partake in, you know, the Vicodin or the, the painkillers, the opiates, they would create that illusion. They would give me that illusion of safety. And it, it made me feel like I belonged in a sense. I guess it was just sort of easier for me to fit in. There was, matter of fact, there, there was probably nothing that I wouldn't do short of robbing somebody or killing somebody for a bottle of pills. How does your addiction affect your relationships at this point? What's your living situation? So the further I got into my opiate addiction, the more unreliable I, I became, you know, because like, like we spoke about that those opiates will, will create this false character in you and you're, you're there and you're present and you're really, really agreeable with everybody that you're around. But if you don't have them, you become cancerous to any environment you put it, you're put in. It doesn't matter if you're with family. It doesn't matter if you're with friends, if you're with a stranger, if you're an opiate user and you don't have your opiates, you will quickly, you will quickly be remembered as that person you do not want to be around. And although I had a really good, I think 
I don't want to call it a success rate, but I was able to acquire, you know, consistently pills. Um, there were spurts and sprees and times in between my use that I didn't have them. And that weighed heavy on my relationships. People, I became, I became volatile, right? Nobody ever knew what they were going to get with Chris. And so people started to not invite me places. My name started to become associated with the guy who's a dick. Nobody wants to be around him. He doesn't have any money. He's always, he's always bitching. He's always bickering. Uh, he's always complaining. And those were the times, right, where I just wasn't high. And I didn't want to miss out on something, so I would drag myself there or, or whatever. And that just wears. It just got a lot of wear and tear on people around you, especially those people who, who care about you and can't really figure out what's going on with you. So it ultimately was the erosion. It, it eroded away. It just ate away at all my, all my relationships, friends, family, acquaintances. At some point, your luck runs dry in California. Did you end up staying there? So I'm, I'm in California and I'm still partying hard and uh, I'm, I'm still just, just barely hanging on, right? And uh, I have convinced my mom now to come visit me in San Diego from Texas to spend some time with me. I've got tons of pills. So, uh, and I've got my, I've got a prescription for Adderall. Like I'm just, I've got, I've got every, everything's lined up. I can be a really good son for a little while. Right. Um, so she comes in and she's, she, she, she's mom. And she takes me and we go to the, the, the Apple store and she buys me all the equipment I need to start my next dream, which is Photoshop, edit, uh, image editing, all of those things that really uh, go hand in hand with, you know, uh, magazines like Thrasher, the skateboarding culture, photography, all of these things I'm into right now. I'm, I'm a really big dreamer. That's what a lot of people would say at this time, right? I've got these grand ideas and everybody around me is doing it. So she comes in and she spends a great deal of money on me and uh, she leaves. And about two days later, um, a buddy of mine asks me to help him move. So, um, I help him. I said, yeah, sure. You know, uh, but so I put my computer on my dad on this little table in the, in my room and I, I close the drawer and, uh, I go help him move. And there's some other equipment out there that I have. And I come back, um, and it's gone. And I, I can't really wrap my head around it at first. And I, Go ask my roommates what's going on. Nobody knows what's going on. And, you know, at this point, you got to understand that this is like, this is going to be my next big break. This is going to be bigger than basketball. This is going to be my, I told you so. Like, I told you I didn't have to play basketball in order to be successful. And all, all my friends that, that you say don't care about me, care about me. And they're going to really just usher me in, right? This is my, this is what I'm thinking. So uh, I come to find out my roommates had taken this brand new Mac, just expensive tricked out computer and a few accessories and pawned them for like $200 worth of pills. And uh, another one of my roommates knew about it. And I asked him about it and, and they just were like, no, no, no. And then I had to find out from somebody and I lost my mind, literally.
I, I literally felt like the world was going to end. Um, and I think I, I grabbed a handle of Jack Daniels and I just started drinking. And I drank to a point where reality was no longer, I was, I had completely divorced it. Um, and I, I, I went through this really weird moment and I, I, I started cutting myself. I had grabbed a big cut kitchen knife. I felt like my life was over. I felt like nobody was ever going to believe in me again. Like it, it was just this really awkward moment. And I, I, I started to cut myself and in the middle of all this sobbing and, and cutting myself, I had called my dearest friend at this time and he was at his, he was at a party people were throwing him and I was crying and I was sobbing and he was a really influential character at this moment um, in San Diego and in just in the skateboard industry. And he asked me what was wrong and I, I could barely get it out. And, and he was like, well, what, what's going on? And he, he said, he said, you need to pack your stuff. And I said, what? And he said, you need to pack your stuff. I'll be there in a minute. And he showed up. I had my, I was all bloody. Um, he wrapped my arm for me and uh, he packed my stuff and threw it in the car and drove me to Texas. And he was like, you got to get out of here or you're going to kill yourself. I don't think I was suicidal at that time. I think I was just at my wits end. You know, you, I, I talk, I, the people I talk to, uh, when they ask me about how and what I've done to transform myself, I, you often hear me talk about moments of clarity, but they're brief, you know, and, 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 and when that computer got stolen, I knew there was something in me for a quick second, you know, I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. And then I just lost my mind. Um, and he knew, he knew, he knew that I, if I didn't leave, that I would either drink myself to death or that I would end up doing something stupid. So he, uh, he was an amazing friend and he filled my car up with gas and put my stuff in the car and said, I'm taking you home. And he, uh, took me to Texas to my mom's house. Did your mom know you were coming? She, she didn't know I was coming initially. I think a few hours into the drive, uh, we had, he talked some sense into me um, and it was like, okay, call your mom. Well, we can't call her now. It was excuse after excuse. But initially I, I called her and there were a few phone calls uh, where she tried to push me back. Right. I, I knew that they didn't want me there, not because they didn't love me, but because they couldn't handle me and they couldn't handle the circumstance. Uh, they were getting ready to move in a little bit. Tanya was supposed to move into the house. There were a lot of plans going on out there. And uh, here, here I come again, um, all cut up and drunk and uh, got all of my life's possessions in a four by four box. And, uh, and I don't have anywhere to go, so what are they gonna do, right? Not enough money in the world at this point can substitute for the amount of stress that that produces on a family. So, I called and I said, I'm on my way. And I didn't fully explain what was going on. And she said, what do you need money? We get you money, you know? And it was, it was a tough time for me because I, I wasn't fully, I wasn't fully honest with her, but I think I wanted her to know 
that I was hurt. And she, she cared, but I didn't feel like she cared. And it was a tough moment for me to sort of force my way back in there. And, and, and I knew that, I knew that nobody really wanted me there, not because they didn't love me, but because they couldn't help me. And so I was on my way to Texas, uh, surprise visit from Chris. Chris, thank you so much for being here today and sharing those truths because they're powerful and it's so important that people hear your honesty and that you've overcome. As our audience now knows, your life continued on a path that ultimately led you in prison. You have a success story to tell that we'll continue to tell. But what I want to end with, as we always do, is a lesson that you learned in prison. What's a lesson you learned while you were in prison? No matter what you're going through, keep your head up. Don't let yourself be bogged down or mired in the things that are going on around you. Make sure that you keep your head up and your shoulders tucked back and that you know where you're going. Treat your failures and your successes much in the same. When you succeed, you succeed because you do something right and you continue it moving forward. When you fail, you have an opportunity to learn and that learning moment can propel you forward or it can keep you in the same place. So make sure you treat them both equally. Tune in for the next episode as we continue this journey with Chris.